This is Three Women and a Bottle of Wine. Three friends. Three former TV reporters. And one bottle of wine. Delving into whatever interests us. News, not news. What affects our lives? Because it's probably affecting yours, too. I'm Kim Inslee. I'm Lynn Melling. And I'm Julie Barkey. And now on with the pod. Are you longing to start mapping out your next vacation? I know I am, whenever that's going to be. Hello, everybody. I'm Kim Inslee. And I'm Lynn Melling. I know I'm ready. We've all been forced to remain home for a while. But what if your career is all about travel? Rudy Maxa began his career as a journalist. In fact, he was once nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. He has since honed his talents to help millions over the years become savvy travelers. He is our guest on this Three Women and a Bottle of Wine. Rudy, welcome so much. My dream come true, Three Women and <laughs> I've been a huge fan of your work for so long. I'm a total travel nerd, travel show nerd. I don't get to actually do the traveling as much as I'd like. But was traveling always a passion of yours? How did you kind of get yeah, into I'm, this? I'm an army brat. And uh, three months old, I was born in Cleveland, Ohio. My father was in the army. He was stationed in Turkey. And they had no housing for dependents. And <clears throat> so my baby brother, my mother and I lived with my Czech grandmother in the Czech-Polish ghetto in, in Cleveland. Not that I remember, I was three months old. And then we moved to Germany and that began a life of moving every couple of years around the world, uh, Europe, back to Germany again. And you know, Huntsville, Alabama, Aberdeen Proving Ground, Maryland, uh, Washington, D.C., um, Fort Knox, Kentucky. It was, uh, but you know, when you're a kid, you think that's how everyone lives. That's just what people do, you're a kid. And of course, everybody around me was doing it because I was going to government schools on army posts. And everybody else is going in and out. I like that because there's always somebody in your class who drives you nuts. And I don't know how folks who live in one place and go to the same school for years can stand having that same annoying person in your life. I'm so jealous. Either you or they're going to be gone in a year. You know? Yeah. So I that's always tried and I thought that's what you did. And when I started as a journalist, I planned to travel all the time. I started at the Washington Post right after four years at Ohio University. And I was not a foreign correspondent, but I found more reasons to travel around the world for my 11 years at the Washington Post and nine more years at the City Magazine Washingtonian. I got more foreign assignments than anybody on a City Magazine in the world has ever gotten. I'd always what? think up stories that tied into Washington, but I had to go to France or London or Micronesia or whatever. That whole background though, Rudy, I mean, that, um, that tells us you're a curious person, right? Which parlays beautifully into the career of journalism, which you mentioned is where you started. Uh, at the Washington Post. And so there was this Pulitzer nomination, and this was an investigative piece that you did, uh, which actually led to some changes on Capitol Hill. Tell us a little yes, bit. Yes, Kim, I only lost the Pulitzer by one vote, but you know, really, who remembers all these years <laughs> <Who's> later? <counting? laughs> yeah, it was a story about a congressman from Ohio who nobody had heard of named Wayne Hayes. Oh, yeah. I and heard of him. You heard of him after, though. No one heard of him before. True, true. He was nobody, except on Capitol Hill, he was somebody. He was chairman of the House Administration Committee. Now, when was the last time you ever heard of the House Administration Committee? Never. But he was the guy who decided you as a congressperson, where your office was, where your parking space was, how big your office space was. And so people he didn't, politicians he hated, like Bella Obzug, the Democrat from New York, the big hats at the time, hated her. He put her in an office you know, with 12 people, it should have been an office for three people. There are three house office buildings. He put her parking for her and all her staff, two buildings away from her building. Um, he was that kind of guy. He, he always hired beauty pageant winners. And he was famous for having, you know, having, you'd go over to interview him for something and he would call in his latest hire and say, yeah, just you know, walk around, do a model turn here for us. Mm. Let him see everything, you know, that kind wow. of thing. I mean, this, but nobody outside of Washington knew about this or outside of Capitol Hill did. 
but I'd gone to college in Ohio and I knew his reputation. Um, so I had started a personalities column, AKA gossip column at the Washington Post before people had all the personality columns with bold faces and all that. But I would hear all these little things that were interesting, you know, the NBC, you know, Chet Huntley got the million dollar advance for a book. Uh, some senator, you know, left, left a thousand dollar bill at the restaurant without tipping. And I would send them on to different parts of the paper and all these seasoned reporters would go, you know, it's that guy who, you know, just started in the magazine. He couldn't break many stories. Anyway, so I started this personality column and my editor was a woman named Marion Clark and she was in love with a guy in New York and she went up one weekend to go to a football game and she thought she was going to marry this guy. And as he took her to the train station on Sunday to send her back to D.C., he said, listen, I'm breaking up with you. I've met somebody else. And so she upgraded to a first class car, bought a bottle of wine and proceeded to drink it. And there was a paint factory explosion in Wilmington, Delaware, and there was debris on the tracks. So the Tryon, then called a Metroliner, now called Nacella, was stalled for three hours. And there were only three other people on the train. A restaurateur, very well known, you saw the Tut Shore of Washington named, uh, uh, named Duke Zebert and a toy salesman from South Jersey who looked like Elliot Gould. And Duke Zebert had this young, dishy blonde, incredibly voluptuous blonde as his girlfriend. And uh, she didn't say anything most of the time until Marion started having drunk a lot of wine, talking about her boyfriend and how men will you know, break your heart, take it out and boil it. And that brought this woman named Liz alive. And she said, men, the stories I could tell you about men. And Marion said, yeah, like what? And she wouldn't tell, but all she found out was she worked for a guy named Wayne Hayes on Capitol Hill. And she came in Monday morning, told me the sob story about the boyfriend, said, well, you got to check on this woman. She looks like trouble. She works for somebody named Wayne Hayes from Ohio. I said, yeah, I know his reputation. So we agreed to have lunch with her. She agreed to have lunch with us. And she didn't show up. So we set another one up, same restaurant, didn't show up. So I waited about three months and we, let's call her again. Well, she left the congressman's office. We called the congressman's office. She's gone out to Hollywood to be a movie star. And I uh, couldn't find her. And that was that. Two years later passed. Marion gets a call from a woman sobbing on the phone. It's her. I couldn't get a part. I'm back working for Wayne Hayes and he's going to kill me. And I want to meet with that guy you wanted me to meet with two years ago. So we met at a Stouffer's. <laughs> I said, what do you mean the Congress is going to kill you? Well, he's going to marry. He says, I'm his mistress. And he's going to marry his other mistress who's running the, the, his Ohio office. And everybody in the office is invited to the wedding. And I wasn't. So I went in today and I told him, this is embarrassing to me. I want to be invited. And he had the Capitol Hill, please drag me out. So she called us. I said, well, you're, so you're mad. He's marrying mistress. No, I'm not mad about that because I'm being promoted. He told, I'm being promoted to mistress number one now instead of mistress number two. It said, I can't go to the wedding. So I said, well, you know, at the Washington Post, we don't write about politicians' private life. I said, what do you, what do, you do for the congressman? Well, I told you, I'm his mistress. I said, are you, pay oh yeah, I get paid $13,000 a year. Are you going to the office? Well, no, you don't go to the office. Well, no, I just have to be available at night to have sex with him. So I said, well, you know, it could be a story because it's congressional funds. And, and I went to Ben Bradley, then the, my executive editor at the Post, and told him what I said, look, can I follow this? He said, yeah, you can follow. Anyway, we spent a few weeks uh, checking her office, which she never showed out. Her office was nowhere near his. It was in another building. And so it was going to come out on a Sunday, and we called him on Saturday for comment. And he said, hell's bells, I'm a happily married man. She's a troubled woman. I don't want to talk anymore. And I will tell you, it came out Sunday. And it caused quite a, I didn't think it was going to, anybody was going to, no, who had heard of Wayne Hayes? But it struck some chord in America. Americans who always say, oh, those guys, they just have their girlfriends on the payroll. And here's one standing up saying, hi, I'm the girlfriend and I'm on his payroll. So by Monday night, Johnny Carson was making Liz Ray jokes and everybody was laughing. 
Sunday night, he went on all three networks, ABC, NBC, and CBS, that's all there were at the time, and looked right in the camera and said, oh, the Washington Post got it all wrong. And I thought, this is the end of my career. We made some crucial mistake. Well, it turns out we didn't. He tried to commit suicide a couple of weeks later by taking an overdose of sleeping pills and then left Congress. And they changed all the laws. So now every two weeks when payroll comes out in Congress, congressmen have to sign an affidavit saying nobody on your staff is doing anything that isn't congressionally work. You have so I, many I have stories. stories like that. Yeah, absolutely. You have a million <laughs> stories. You've traveled around the world. Why do, you, why do you think travel is so important? It's a stupid question, but why? I mean, Listen, why do you think it's so important? I live in Minnesota. It's the first place I've ever met where I have friends who never want to leave Minnesota. What? We have everything here. What don't we have here? I'll say, well, pyramids of Giza. You know, ah, who cares about that? Um, so I've met people who don't want to travel. So it is an important question. Uh, there have been some, some studies, health studies, in the last six years that are very eye-opening about travel. They find that people who travel are generally more creative because here's the thing. In your day-to-day -day life, and most of us only get two or three weeks vacation a year, or four if we're lucky, and you're, you've got a routine. You get up in the morning, you have the breakfast, you've got the same wife, the same kids, the same girlfriend, or you're alone, you're in the same house. You take the same route to work, you do the same job, and it's fine. It's what we do. Um, when you travel, you're, you're, your brain gets new sensations. If you're in a foreign country and there are new fragrances, there are new languages that you hear, new architecture, new mores, new habits, new foods, all those things stimulate your brain. It, they change the synopsis in your brain. You learn a lot more. So right there, you're expanding your creativity. They do creative studies on people in offices. The people who've traveled abroad extensively can make decisions much faster than those who can't, that their solutions to problems are much more creative. It also has been found by medical studies all over the country that you, it, 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 it really makes you live, helps you live longer. You're more relaxed. People have less heartache, lower blood pressure, et cetera. It's damn good for you. And it's good for the world, I think. I mean, it's hard... I'm not, I think Anthony Bourdain said, it's hard to hate somebody you have dinner with. And, uh, you know, I've gone to countries where, I mean, I remember my first visit to Russia. I thought, mm. yeah, I mean, people couldn't be happier to see me, couldn't be happier to host me. So since you've been in this business, travel has changed considerably. I mean, you've been yes. doing it since well before 9-11, just the way things have morphed. How have they morphed? And is it, is it harder in your opinion, or is it still well worth the effort? I think it's still well worth the effort. It's harder in one way and easier in another. It's much easier because the internet was invented. I mean, you all are too young, but I remember when I wanted to fly, say from Washington DC to a city I'd never been to, if I didn't know what airline was flying and it was 10 at night and I couldn't call a travel agent, I had to wait till the next day. Now it's two keystrokes away. Not only do you see what airlines fly, you see all the other airlines that fly, you see all their fares, you see their times, you see what it costs in miles or what it costs in, in dollars. So, and, and, you can, if you're going to Bangkok for the first time, you can go online and read the English language newspaper there, the Bangkok Post. You can buy tickets ahead of time to go to art museums in Rome, to opera in, in Milan, uh, anywhere in the world. You can go ahead of time and, and make logistics are made a little easier. You can do your research. So the computer's been a great gift. It's also made choices a little harder because there's so many choices. I remember I was once doing a story on uh, Russians who lived in Washington. At the time, they, weren't allowed to, they were barely allowed to leave their embassy. They had a whole embassy compound where they had apartments as well. If you're high ranking enough, you could leave. And I got a guy, met him socially, and he agreed to talk to me without using his name, what it was like to be a Russian in America. And I thought he was going to tell me how when you go to the grocery store, it's so incredible. This was when, you know, Russia was down and out and there were, you know, women on this, you know, selling spoons on, and, and, and two vegetables on the street. And I said, well, isn't it great? You go to the 
you go to the Safeway and I mean, you've got, you know, he said, no, it's not great. I said, why? He said, you, it, in Russia, they have two kinds of cereal. I go to your supermarket. There are 50 different boxes of cereal. I don't know which one to get. In Russia, I know who my plumber is. I opened, we had yellow pages back then. I opened the yellow pages and there are 14 pages, AA1, AAA1, AA1 publisher, Excel, but I, I don't know what plumber to call. How do I know who to call? It's like going to the Cheesecake Factory and you can't decide what's order from the menu. <laughs> exactly. There you go. So it's, you, know, I, it, it, you get that, those are eye-opening things by talking to people in other countries. You happen to be in DC, okay, but still, it's, uh, you, you, learn all, you look at things a different way. You turn, you turn that crystal cube around and see how the light comes in differently when you travel. Everything in our, you know, big moments in our life, and we're recording this at the height of everybody staying home during COVID, and it will leave a mark on our life as well. So before we started this conversation, uh, and because you brought up the internet, you were telling us a charming story of how the internet is actually, and I think for a lot of us, brought us a little closer together virtually. So we all, we all have our Zoom meetings, right? And it's like, uh, but True. as a fam, as family, we're learning this is a way to connect as well. And I just wanted you to tell the story of how you're able to connect with your relatives all over the world. Yeah, well, my son, who's uh, 34, lives in San Francisco. My daughter, who just turned 44 two days ago, lives in London with her, my two granddaughters, who are nine and 11, and with her husband. They're both my husband, my daughter and her husband are American, but all four of them are now English, British citizens. They've lived there long enough. They have dual passports and they have a home near Bordeaux in France. And my daughter wisely pulled the two girls out of school five days before school was canceled because she thought this virus thing might be serious and got into France to go to their home there by car two hours before France shut the borders. So they're at this fabulous house in, in Cap Ferret, which has the largest beaches in Europe. It's just heaven on earth and no Americans know about it. Only sort of French people do. Anyway, so they're there. Now, normally I talk to my daughter in life, maybe I'll talk to her once every three or four weeks on the picture phone, as I like to call it, you know, on a WhatsApp or whatever. I talk to her every other day now, if not every day. And this morning, my nine-year-old granddaughter, who is like Miss Organizer, Miss, they're nine and 11, but the nine-year-old's Miss, let's make it happen now, girl. Uh, I got a text from her this morning saying, Grandma, do you want to have a dinner Zoom meeting with us? I have some surprise guests for you. <laughs> I said, sure. So I signed on and there was my son-in-law in London who I haven't been able to talk to since it started. Every time I call him, he's an energy derivatives trader and he's always got computers and, you know, and there was my son from San Francisco I pay no attention to because he has given me no grandchildren. Um, and of course, my daughter was in France. And so it was just wonderful to have them all on the screen there. I've been to that home in France so I can imagine where they are, you know, and, you know, the sun is out and it's 75 degrees and they're sitting on their deck having dinner, fresh oysters. I mean, it's like, so yeah, it's great. And even with friends here, I Zoom, Zoom with a lot of friends here a couple times a week and it's a lot cheaper than all going out of us all going out to dinner and we can get more people together. And it's, uh, it's interesting. It has definitely in a virtual way brought people closer. And I would imagine that right now people are taking some of that money they're saving by not going out for dinner and stocking it away or stashing it for a vacation. And you were just alluding to a place that no American really knows about. Give us a couple of really good secret places or not so secret places that you are willing to let the cat out of the bag so that as we do map out our next vacation, when the stay at home orders are lifted, where can we go? This is coming from crazy, I'm crazy about Uruguay, hmm. particularly a place called Jose Ignacio. The most famous place in Uruguay now looks like Miami Beach. It didn't used to when I started going. It's called Punta del Este. And that's where most people go and the rich Argentines go there. And it's very easy to get to Uruguay. If you go to, I always go to Buenos Aires, you spend three or four days, and then you take a one, and a one hour ferry across water and you're in a town called Colonia in Uruguay. And I 
drive a couple miles, well, a couple hours uh, up the coast or down the coast toward Brazil and go to a place called Jose Ignacio. There are very few hotels, unfortunately, but there are some. And if you plan ahead, you can go there. The high season is mid-December to mid-January. That's when all the rich Argentines come there. The very cool restaurants, including one the New York Times did a 10,000-word piece on a couple of years ago called The Best Restaurant in the World, a place called La Huesia, kind of restaurant where you go in for lunch and you find yourself leaving about two in the morning. Like, mm. how did that happen? Um, so I love Jose Ignacio in Uruguay. Uh, Cap Foray, that I just mentioned where my daughter is, doesn't have any hotels either. Very, it's a long, narrow peninsula, about 35 minutes south of the city of Bordeaux, in Bordeaux. Uh, big, uh, a lot of oyster man checks. And the whole, it's, it has the Atlantic Ocean on one side with the widest beaches, the biggest beaches in the world. You can't believe yeah. how big, beautiful yeah. sand. And then the other side's a bay that's all lined with oyster beds. And you can literally, from your home there, call up and they, a guy comes on his bike or in his car and brings you 32 shelled oysters on ice all ready to eat for like 85 cents an oyster. Wow. Um, but there's not many hotels, but right across the bay is a town called Arcachon. And they have a lot of hotels there. Many Americans know it. And during the day, you can take the ferry over for 15, 20 minutes and go to the Cap Freight Beach. They have a little train that runs a track across the narrow peninsula to the, to the beach. And then they have even the evening. So if you are in Cap Freight, you have the restaurants to yourself, and it's quite nice. Uh, I would say northern Thailand. I love Bangkok. I uh, had a home there for 28 years until recently. But northern uh, Chiang Mai and Chiang Rai in northern uh, Thailand, I find delightful. The food is exquisite. The people are lovely. So those are the three places I'd suggest. Also, the country of Georgia. I went there for the first time last year to Tbilisi. I was going to a meeting. I knew nothing about the country of Georgia. It takes like a night to get there generally because I had to stay in Istanbul overnight. And I thought, oh, yeah, it used to be a Soviet republic. Oh, my God, it's going to be all gray buildings. No. All the cabs are, are, uh, are Teslas and Mercedes. The boulevards are like six lanes wide, beautiful architecture, fabulous food. A hotel equivalent to a Four Seasons is about $230 a night. And I mean equivalent to a Four Seasons. A hip hotel like a W or something really cool is a cool one um, that used to be a printing factory. It's like $110 a night. The food is outrageous. Two, dinner, two for dinner, two bottles of wine, and their wine is exquisite. It's on the same longitude as Napa. And, and, and I got to tell you, it's just started to come to Minneapolis. The wine company, that's a distributor here, just started bringing Georgia wine in about a year ago. It is incredibly priced. The two of you can have a dinner, and I mean a complete dinner, and a couple of bottles of wine, and the tab might come with tip to $19. Oh, my God. Holy cow. East Georgia. And the people are lovely. And you just can drive up into the Caucasus Mountains in one half an hour in the winter, and you're at these amazing, luxurious ski resorts. They're, again, generally unknown to most Americans. There you go. Thank nice. you. Oh, my gosh. Such great tips. <laughs> okay, well, it is time for a quick break. But when we return, it's time for the final flight. Three Women and a Bottle of Wine is supported by 515 Productions. 515 Productions is a video production business with base camps in Minneapolis and Des Moines, Iowa. Ian and his crew understand the art of creative storytelling, and they know how to make video look fantastic. Learn more at 515productions.com. Our logo was created by Aaliyah DeSalt, a creativity guru offering art workshops to everyone from business executives to book clubs because we all have untapped creative potential just waiting to be unleashed. You can find her contact information on our website. You can stay up to date on our podcast by checking out our website, threewomenandabottleofwine.com. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where you'll find behind-the-scenes photos and, of course, much, much more. Be sure you don't miss an episode. Subscribe to our show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Okay, we're back, everybody, with travel host, all-around travel guru, Rudy Maxa. So, Rudy, Final Flight is where we fire off three quick questions for you to learn a little bit more about you. Was it anybody, or is there a board, or what? (laughs) There's not a board. And here's the first question, all right? Mm -hmm. Worst travel experience? Yeah, well, I was shooting a show in Uzbekistan on the Silk Road. And we're in the little town of Hiva, which is spelled K-H-I-V-A, but the K is silent. And in the middle of town was a guy with a camel standing under a tree with a rope around his neck. Saw no other camels anywhere else, just there. And my producer said, well, wouldn't it be a good idea if for the show close, we put you on the camel, and we put you, it was 110 degrees outside in the summer, and we put you in this long velvet Uzbek robe and a, a big bearskin hat, and you're carrying a silk robe, because they make silk there, silk robes, silk throughout, and some spices, which you're famous for. And I said, yeah, that's fine, that's good. So we go up to this guy, the camera, camera was named Catherine, and we had a translator who suggested this to the owner that what he, he stood up under the tree and charged people 80 cents to have a picture taken on the camel. You put kids on the camel, mom would take a picture, done. So my, you know, the transfer says, yeah, they want to do this. Walk down the street, this guy's going to be, the guy says, not a good idea. Now, right there, we should have gone, if the camel owner is telling you it's not a good idea, he probably knows. But no, 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 no. Said, we're going to come back. It was like 10 in the morning. We're going to come back around nine tonight when the light's soft and nice. Going to go down this cobblestone street just to put Rudy on. No big and we'll pay you $60, which was probably his monthly earnings. He's lucky. He's okay. So we go back at nine o'clock at night. We get on this camel. And I get up on the camel. We get a ladder to get up on the camel. No saddle. Nothing to hold on. Nothing to hold on to. No thing around the neck. No, nothing. And I got my hand. And I got this car. And he is in, you won't see this in the show. But he's leading the camel by rope and feeding it bread constantly as we walk. And the cameraman's, and I'm looking at the camera and saying, I'm leaving Uzbekistan, laden with silk and spices, blah, 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 blah. Fine. Every producer needs 20 takes. So, okay, we got to do another take. So I get off the camel with the ladder. We go back, we get a ladder. I get back on the camel. And I suddenly feel this incredible heaving between my legs. And I go up into the air long enough to look down at the cobblestone and go, this is not going to be pretty. So broken right clavicle, a lot of stitches in the head. That's probably my worst dream experience. Don't, if you're ever in heaving, do not wow. go near Catherine the camel. Okay. My job is a danger. <laughs> Who would have thunk it? Hey, Rudy, let's say you were no longer allowed to travel. Where would you live? Where would you just be situated? Where would you put your roots? Well, I'm not, not, not allowed to travel now. And here I am in St. Paul. It wasn't my choice. I moved here for a woman. This was not, I'm a East Coast guy. I lived in Washington, New York forever. Anyway, after, after college. Uh, where would I? Well, I was just saying to a friend at dinner tonight, probably Thailand. Um, I just like Thailand a lot. Uh, the other problem is my family's in London and Paris, London and France and San Francisco, and I have a lot of friends here. So I love being here because I have so many friends, good friends, but I have a lot of friends in LA, San Francisco, Washington, New York too. If it was unlimited money, I'd live in New York because I really like New York and I owned a place with a then girlfriend on the Upper East Side and I wouldn't necessarily live in the Upper East Side, but I love New York. I love Washington. So if I stayed in the States, it'd be New York or Southern California, probably, because I've been trying to get to Southern California for years because of the weather. I don't like cold weather. Years of Minnesota, yeah. So Rudy, any super secret travel tip that you have uncovered over your many years well, of traveling that we need to know about? Okay, you're going to Paris, you've never been at the Eiffel Tower, or the person you're with hasn't been at the Eiffel Tower, which has happened to me many times between children and several girlfriends. Um, there's going to be a long line in, in, in summer, always a long line, appreciating long, long line. But if you book a table at the Jules Verne restaurant, which is up one level, it's a Michelin-starred restaurant, um, there's a private elevator. 
So you go a little early, you get in the private elevator, go to the restaurant, and then you can get another elevator that takes you up and you avoid the entire line. You can go for lunch or dinner. Lunch is cheaper. Sweet. Good to know. Good to and know. And if you ever have to go through what we went through, you know, people trying to cancel and cancel their flights when we all when this all started, when mm -hmm. the virus started. Um, the way I did it with Delta and American, right, to cancel a lot of flights, um, I called their European numbers, their Asian numbers, reservation numbers, because they weren't busy. They answered in a minute. I called them here and they're all, you know, we'll call you back in three hours. And I said, um, and, you know, the proper time to use frequent flyer miles, which are worth a lot if you use them for business class flying or upgrades, is when you're using it for business class flying or upgrades. Perfect. Great well, advice. I think we are now all savvy travelers, aren't we? I hope yeah, so. Yeah, we want to thank travel expert Rudy Maxa for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I, I've got Andrew Zimmerman on my, my new webcast on Thursday at 3. You can. And what's the name of your webcast, your podcast, so we can hear it? If you go to Facebook, to Rudy, to, you go to Maxa Tours. I started a tour company last year. Great idea, huh? Not a lot of tours. <laughs> um, if you go to Maxa Tours on Facebook, you'll see a direct link that'll allow you to register. And it's free, but if you register and then you'll get the code and a reminder on Thursday to tune in at 2 p.m. in the afternoon. Andrew Zimmerman is my guest this week, and I have uh, Samantha Brown on next week, and a whole lineup of guests for the next few weeks. So. Fantastic. Well, you guys are terrific to have me on. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you so very much. much. And we'll thank catch you cheers. next time. Cheers. cheers.